Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems, and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. This week, I'm talking to Will Pelton and Nick Crawl of Phytoform Labs Limited. In this episode, Will and Nick discuss their journey in starting a venture capital-backed company, bringing artificial intelligence to facilitate genome editing. They discuss finding a way to exploit the new avenues that advances in plant breeding technology are opening up, the way that they put their values at the heart of the business, and developing new varieties to help improve the sustainability of agriculture and combat climate change. I hope you enjoy it. Nick, Will, why don't you start by just telling me a little bit about your background? Were you interested in plants from early on? So uh, I'm Nick and uh, I grew up actually in Slovakia and then moved to Belgium uh, before eventually ending up in uh, London, UK for my uh, sort of uh, undergraduate and graduate studies. I wouldn't, I wouldn't really say I was actually interested in plants from early on, <laughs> to be honest. I I studied uh, um, microbiology and, and sort of genetic engineering. To, and uh, sort of as I was progressing in my university studies, I ended up bumping into plants and, and realizing how sort of awesome they were. So, yeah, that, that's that's me. Uh, hi, I'm Will. Uh, I grew up in the UK. And, yeah, I've been pretty plant obsessed uh, from quite a young age. My grandfather was a farmer. He was actually dairy and arable. Um, so spending summers on the farm. Uh, and then I think most of my family are pretty into, you know, gardening, very sort of British hobby, uh, having allotment, that sort of thing. And I've always just been kind of interested in the sort of self-reliance of plants uh, and the fact that, you know, with just a seed, um, you can basically feed yourself, which is a pretty incredible thing, I think. So uh, that sort of drove me to pursue plants as a potential career, which I didn't initially realize was an option. So the two of you did your undergraduate degrees at separate institutions, but it was a master's in molecular biology at Imperial College that brought you together. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. it was a uh, uh, heavily subscribed course with six of us, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when did the idea of starting a business together develop? You know, take take me through that journey a little bit, because it's one thing to be studying together and to be friends. It's another thing to then decide, A, on an idea, and B, act on that idea. Hey, you came up with it, originally. Yeah, well, so the, the thing that was going on with our PhD programs was that every PhD student sponsored by them has to take three months off to uh, basically get a uh, professional internship in a completely different setting to, to their research. And at the time, I wasn't very keen on uh, sort of getting a corporate internship. So <laughs> I sort of <laughs> turned to Will and said, why don't we create an internship for ourselves? And, uh, and that's sort of where, where the sort of initial idea of should we explore the agriculture market for, uh, you know, if there is a sort of possibility to exploit the 
the skills and the tools that, that we are working with uh, during our PhDs. So we took three months off, and and the good thing was that uh, Imperial College has has a lot of structure to sort of support budding entrepreneurs. They really sort of force you to get out of the building and uh, create, I guess, business hypotheses each week that you uh, that you try and try and challenge by basically interviews with the uh, with the uh, in- industry stakeholders. This was a huge shock for both Will and me because you know we were PhDs. We basically hardly ever spoke to anyone before. And and suddenly we we were made to talk to, to complete strangers week on week and you know in the three months we uh, we learned really a lot. Did Phytoform spring fully formed from that experience, or has it been a, a journey from there to now? Yeah, I think that's a, an understatement. It's definitely been a journey and a, an evolution. CRISPR Cas9 genome editing had recently um, arrived on the scene. I, it was out before then, but it was sort of only recently being used in the plant sciences, uh, as we tend to sort of get these tools a little bit later. Um, and we'd started using it as part of our PhDs. And yeah, it's an incredible tool. You know, initially, we went in thinking we were going to work on, I think, saffron. Yeah, it was yeah, really Saffron was our initial idea. We were going to increase the number of um, the actual, uh, what is it? Is it the stigma? Uh, or the stamen, stamens that are used for, for saffron. Um, and obviously by increasing that, you increase the production. Uh, and since saffron's worth its weight in gold, we assumed that would be a great idea. Um, <laughs> as it turns out, it's, it's not a great idea. It's not the biggest market in the world. Uh, and it's also an incredibly difficult uh, problem to work on. And not to mention, uh, you know, 90% of production of saffron's in Iran, which oh, has some challenges in itself. So yeah, so we ended up exploring so many different options, uh, you know, different business models. Initially, we were looking at like a service type model, um, and also different crops. And and our technology has evolved enormously as well. So most people, I think, listening will know a little bit about genome editing, but just just to make sure we've covered the bases, give me a little overview of what genome editing is and how that's different to other techniques that can be used in crop improvement, and also how you are using that within Phytoform. So what's making Phytoform unique? So, yeah, genome editing uh, exists in many different forms, but the uh, most recent form is based on the first discovered molecule, CRISPR-Cas9. And what was revolutionary about this is it's a very simple system that can make targeted changes in DNA. Uh, so previously in plants, there's a few options uh, to improve your plants genetically. You can just go the conventional route, but obviously that's based on chance. Other more recent options include uh, genetic modification, and that's a, that's you know it's a really interesting technology. It's become uh, very contentious, but it is very efficient. You can transfer I don't know like a, a gene that confers disease resistance very easily into another species. Uh, Whereas genome editing, the amazing thing about it is there's no need to use any foreign DNA at all, but you can still make very specific changes uh, and relatively easily, which is like a complete revolution uh, as compared to, you know, randomly crossing two plants together uh, and then also just randomly inserting foreign DNA. Yeah, about about our technology, I guess where Phytoform Labs is unique, that as as Will said, one of the findings we we really discovered is that 
the GMO technology was really contentious. And if we are going to introduce a new biotechnological tool, it has to be clear why why there is benefit for it and, and also why like how, what's the minimum amount of change that we we can do with it. And so this is where Phytoform Labs uh, is building its sort of proprietary tech uh, platform, I guess. So we are really targeting crop traits that can really benefit both uh, the farmers and the consumers. So things like uh, environmental sustainability, like climate change tolerance, disease resistance, all these things that will benefit uh, both the farmer and the consumer, as well as nutritional qualities of crops. And we feel that with genome editing, we can can sort of uh, improve the sustainability of the supply chain. And the secondary thing, as we already mentioned, is that uh, there is many flavors with which genome editing comes. And we are very much focused on using footprint-free genome editing. So we are introducing the minimum amount of changes to the genome, and we never actually uh, transform uh, foreign DNA into the plant at any of its stages. So some some uh, some uh, people can use genome editing by temporarily uh, transforming the CRISPR molecules and then essentially breeding them out from the from the sort of a gene pool. But uh, but we sort of feel like this is quite clunky, and essentially it's relying on the old. GMO uh, infrastructure, and that's what we are avoiding. I know that one of the things that has been a big factor in in what you want to achieve with Phytoform is the environmental impact. So tell me a bit about sort of your your values underlying it, or why you chose to use a company to go about improving the sustainability of agriculture? Uh, Well, so as I mentioned during my PhD, uh, I worked on potatoes because I was looking to have more of an impact. Um, And so that whole project was basically around reducing waste in storage. And, you know, we were part of a larger consortium. And I think the science was, was amazing. But in terms of what can actually be provided as practical knowledge to a grower or a processor, it was quite limited. Um, and, you know, for a variety of reasons, that was the case. And I think at that point, I realized perhaps um, academia wasn't necessarily for me because, uh, you know, as well as being weirdly plant obsessed, I've also been really, really interested in the environmental side of it. Uh, so to actually make an impact, uh, I kind of came to the conclusion that, that, you know, moving out of academia and, and trying to push that technology myself as part of a company would be the most effective means and, you know, our, our kind of aims when we set out were to improve the sustainability of agriculture. Uh, I'm sure many of many listeners understand already that it's, it's enormously bad for the environment. One of the dirtiest industries, um, which is, is kind of mad because, you know, we see plant life all around us growing quite happily without human intervention. Um, so why on earth has it become this, this huge energy intensive, input intensive industry? Um, and so that drove us to want to improve the sustainability. Uh, and then the secondary thing is also uh, improving the nutrition of crops. Uh, we want to make sure that the consumers see the benefit of this technology. Uh, and one of the key lessons we've learned from you know, the Green Revolution is that they've made em- enormous gains in yield, but perhaps uh, they've sacrificed a little bit um, the nutritional qualities of those plants. So you know we've got massive calories, but what about all those micro and macronutrients that you need, you know, the vitamins, the minerals. 
uh, we've seen them decline slowly over time. So yeah, so that's, that was kind of the driver. We want to make that change in terms of sustainability and nutrition. Uh, and actually forming a company seems like uh, the best best thing at, at the time, certainly to uh, facilitate that change. Now, the big um, problem that Phytoform faces being based in the UK is that genome editing is, or genome edited plants cannot be freely grown in the UK or indeed in Europe. So just... Give me a little bit of context around how the regulatory framework has influenced um, your plans and your thinking, and, and I guess what, what your take on the regulatory barriers is. So, yeah, just to, to put it into context, uh, across the world, genetically modified plants uh, have been regulated in numerous different ways. Uh, and so genetically modified, we mean plants that have foreign DNA inserted into them. Uh, so there's the famous plants like uh, Roundup Ready soybean and, and plants like that. And in Europe, they have been enormously unpopular and been quite heavily regulated. But even in the US, you know, there's still a fair amount of regulation around them. So genome editing, as we mentioned, is, is essentially a different technology um, and a fairly transformative one without many of those negative uh, problems that conventional genetic modifications have. And so it's been looked at in a, as a different technology. It's been judged as a different technology. In Europe, just before we actually, uh, or just after we registered the company, and we were very optimistic and we thought, you know, Europe's going to make a decision on how they're going to regulate genome editing. And we were very positive about it because obviously a lot of plant scientists had been uh, very positive about how it can be used uh, and the results. Uh, and unfortunately, the European Court of Justice decided that it should be regulated in the same way as genetically modified plants, which was uh, disappointing, especially as, uh, well, at least at that point, we were in Europe, uh, based in the UK. Um, as it turns out, the rest of the world has had a slightly different view on this. Um, so in the US, South America, Japan, they've, I mean, they haven't deregulated it as such, but they've, they've put very limited regulations on it. Um, and it's, as long as you make very minor changes and you don't add any DNA, then it's basically treated as any sort of uh, conventionally bred plant. Um, so obviously being a European-based company that has forced us to explore overseas markets uh, and obviously the US it is a big one and one that we focused on up till now but I, I don't know I think we're quietly hopeful that um, when the UK leaves Europe um, that they will review the regulation around genome editing there's certainly been a lot of positive signals from uh, the government that they would be interested to review that so who knows for the moment we're focusing on foreign markets but maybe in the future the UK would uh, be another place that we can explore. You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. You mentioned in Europe there has been this quite strong pushback against gene editing and going way back to the original um, genetic modification days. Have you had to handle objections from friends and family um, around 
this being the core, gene editing being the core of your business? Not, not really. No, not, not huge. I mean, we, we have done uh, some sort of uh, public events and being in plants and doing genome editing, it, it was seen as something of something quite interesting. Um, and so we did have quite a lot of questions. And I think in general, once we got past the sort of initial fear, and once we had told people what the technology is and what we hope to achieve, uh, most people were overwhelmingly positive. Um, but I mean, yeah, we did have a few pretty um, crazy, <laughs> crazy questions from the public. But we we don't need to convince anyone. Like at the end of the day, you know, it is a technology that will benefit the supply chain, and uh, and uh, yeah, if these benefits are explained clearly, then I don't think there should be. No, no, I think education is kind of the key um, key point to that. And I think, you know, as well as with genome editing, it's such a an accessible technology as well. It's very much not just being used by the big agritech giants, which, again, tends to um, create suspicion when, you know, these big uh, juggernauts are the only ones using that technology, but it's definitely being used by, uh, you know, companies like ourselves, small small startups uh, as well, as, and there are plenty of others uh, around the world. So I think that's helped to sort of get rid of some of that suspicion as well. So it sounds like you're quite optimistic that consumer acceptance is within reach once the benefits have, and the tools have been explained more more fully. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, you know, it's tough to say it isn't within reach, but we, we've got some work to do and we've got to make sure we, we deliver some products that actually produce some benefit to the consumer. But yeah, I mean, one of the most interesting things uh, when we speak to uh, people is when we show them before and after images of uh, conventional commercial agricultural crops. So when I say before and after, I mean what the original crop looks like. Um, so if you look at an original banana before humans started to change it, uh, it's literally a small, small fruit that's just full of black hard berries, uh, sorry, seeds um, that look like sort of little buckshot or something. Um, and it obviously took us thousands of years to then produce what we have today, which is, you know, this big fruit with seeds that are almost um, impossible to see. So I think when people see that and they're like, oh, that's not GM, that's actually just how humans have, have, natu have naturally changed plants that they realize that it's not, it's not as simple um, as maybe they think. What are the things that... Um makes Phytoform different is that you are planning to use AI in the way that you decide on which genes to focus on or how to make those changes. So tell me a little bit more about that. During, during I guess, our sort of process of uh, learning what sort of the market wants and what we would be able to do as well technologically, we realize that there is a lot of both old and new uh, problems in the agriculture, like you know, long-term storage, shelf life of crops, post-harvest losses, as well as the new challenges like new diseases and also uh, climate change. Uh, climate change overall. Uh, that that there is a lot of problems to which actually there aren't simple answers in biology, and we sort of realize that genome editing is great. It's basically a molecular tool that we can use to improve genetics, but you can only improve it to what you already know. I mean, it's only as good as the targets and the understanding that you have. And so we sort of thought quite uh, 
quite carefully about this and, and sort of realized that even though plant science has made tremendous progress over the last 50 years, we don't actually know a lot about underlying mechanisms in plants of how to basic, uh, how to maybe improve crops to be more stress tolerant or maybe more disease resistant. And partially because of this is how painful it is to to sort of collect data on new traits, how to actually characterize a new trait, and then also how to confer it to, to more commercial varieties. So, so the understanding about the traits is the key. And, and we, we realized that over the last 10 years, there was a huge explosion in uh, both genomic and also other types of data that... Uh, yeah, it's just sort of been created by by uh, plant groups and also all, all, all sorts of scientists. But I don't think we have really come up with a sort of very clear and smart way of how to use these massive amounts of data. And for that, we are basically building an engine that is uh, very different to how uh, a usual plant scientist would go about discovering a new trait. Instead of sort of relying on... Uh, on slow hypothesis-driven research with, uh, with I guess, a few eureka moments in, in, in the lifespan of, of your career where you'd basically dedicate a whole lifetime to understand one gene or one network. We now rely on these masses of amounts of data to use AI and basically uh, try and get understanding for, of the traits that way. And these sort of learnings and uh, predictions and suggestions we can then feed into the genome editing process. To, uh, to come up with traits that, that basically have never, never really been seen before. And what species are you working on first? As, as a company, we're working on tomato and potatoes. Uh, yeah, I, d- I didn't think I'd revisit potatoes again, but they are back. So the tomato, we're working with a US uh, tomato breeder in Florida. Uh, and basically, actually, for that one, we're introducing a known trait. So this is a trait that was discovered... Uh, uh, I guess using conventional breeding originally, but the issue that our breeder has is that it was discovered in the uh, in tomato varieties used for canning, so like you know processed um, tomatoes for cooking, uh, and getting that from those types of tomatoes into our breeders' fresh market varieties is a huge challenge for him, um, and for various reasons, like I was explaining earlier. Every time he crosses those two different types of tomato, he gets this huge shakeup genetically and inevitably he ends up with this sort of worst of both worlds type of tomato that's useless. Um, so with our technology, we can make a very specific change to introduce this trait without any other changes to the rest of the genome, um, which kind of showcases how, how powerful this technology is. Uh, and then in potato, again, it's uh, waste reduction for this time uh, during harvest and processing uh, and also in storage. Uh, and that's actually going to be using our AI technology, which Nick just described. Uh, and so we're basically going to make two types of uh, traits. The first is to stop bruising in potatoes. So I don't know if you find potato in a bag, um, if it's been knocked around, it browns a little bit. Uh, there's actually nothing wrong with that. It doesn't affect um, like the, the, how healthy that, that tuber is um, or, or the quality, but it obviously looks pretty bad. And that, that leads to huge amounts of waste. Uh, and then our other potato projects, again, reducing waste and storage um, by reducing the amount of sugars that accumulate in potatoes when they're stored in the cold. 
Um, and yeah, so they're both our initial projects on uh, using our AI and genome editing platform. You've been in business now for a few years. You've built up um, the team or, or the startings of your team, um, and you've got some early pre-seed investment and your technology's coming along. Um, but tell me, which bits have you found the hardest so far? Uh, that is a great question. Um, finding the team has been really tricky. You know, we're, we're looking for uh, individuals who sort of buy into the vision of making agriculture more sustainable uh, and more nutritious and who are passionate about it. And at the same time, obviously, they need the relevant skill sets, um, you know, in biology uh, and also the relevant drive. So, yeah, it's been really hard to find the right people and not because there aren't, they aren't out there, but it's a case of actually connecting with them um, and finding them, which has been really tricky. So that's been a learning curve in itself. I mean, I'm, I'm very proud of the team we've assembled, yeah. though. And uh, we definitely took our time, but I feel like now we have a sort of little Phytoform Labs machine that's uh, sort of chugging away and uh, working on, the, on these very large technological problems. Because... You know what we can say is uh, is all nice and uh, and dandy, but actually implementing it in real life is is a lot more difficult than than uh, I guess some people would uh, like you to believe. And we we've heard a lot over our journey that you know anyone can genome edit. You can you can do it in your garage. I can definitely tell you you can't. <laughs> it's it's a lot harder, at least for plants, than uh, than people let on. And uh, yeah, I would say the other another hard thing was definitely the fundraising um that was really far removed from our experience yeah tell me a bit about that tell me about your experience and what worked and has it affected the way you think about running the business so we were really lucky to have um, been provided with some support uh, from various competitions that we took part in uh, and also from grand bodies like innovate uk who you know it's fantastic to be able to have that sort of resource uh, and that got us to the point where we could actually start to look for, tech, uh, look for investment because we'd established the basic technology. The majority of it was just, just us making mistakes and learning. Um, so, you know, speaking to the wrong people or speaking to the right people, but not presenting it in the right way um, uh, or just not delivering the right message, to be honest. Um, and so it was a huge learning experience. Uh, and then really after a lot of, <laughs> a lot of uh, you know, fails and um, luckily, we, we were able to learn on those failings. I think it was like the last like 10, 20% of the fundraising time that we actually managed to work out what we need to achieve um, and how we present it. And that was thanks to um, one of our friends from Imperial. Um, and I think yeah, it's so important to have those sort of connections um, with people who have been through that process, who've been through the fundraising process and who have built a company and who can advise you on it because, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely nothing like anything we've ever done before in academia. So, so you've had some tough times raising investment and getting close to hitting the wall being one of them. What motivates you when the going gets tough? I, I mean, for me, that's, that's pretty easy. Uh, I mean, every day you look at the news and uh, the climate is not getting better. Uh, so it's, yeah, every... Every time it gets tough, I mean, it's far worse for other people on the planet. It's, it's fairly easy to sort of continue that drive. Um, I don't know, what about you, Nick? 
is the fear of failure. <laughs> <laughs> no, but to be honest, I, I completely agree with Will that, uh, you know, climate change is a huge challenge and it, it really feels like if, if it's not going to be us, who is going to do this work? And we're really happy with the sort of community that we have assembled around us with our employees, with our investors, with our partners that we're trying to uh, prove the prove the technology with. So what's next? What's next for Fighter Form and for you guys? <laughs> well, I, I mean, yeah, hopefully COVID will uh, finish soon uh, and we can get back out uh back out into the world a little bit more. Um, but I think, yeah, for the near future, we're very much focused on getting the technology established fully. Um, so that means getting our first crop out, so the tomato project I mentioned, we, we're hoping to get that um, certainly in the fields in the US by next year, by the start of next year. Uh, and then we also need to build out this AI technology fully, uh, initially testing it in a model plant, but we also then want to develop these potatoes uh, and develop those traits. Uh, I don't know. I feel fairly positive. Um, uh, yeah, COVID's definitely been a massive challenge. <laughs> I don't think many startups want that in their first year, but... People will always need food. The The question is if, uh, if we can sort of demonstrate the benefit of using this new technology to help sort of feed feed people and feed feed the world you know maybe with brexit there might even be opportunities for us so we're <laughs> we're, we're quite positive yeah we, we're not too scared the covid was a was a bit of a you know we, we did not <laughs> expect that but we i think in a way it actually made us better managers because we could not be on site and we had to do things remotely and we had to trust the team and we had to set up basically online systems in place that that we are able to sort of document and record and report everything that goes on without having to actually physically be there every day. And of course, COVID did highlight weaknesses in supply chains around the world. So yeah, it's definitely continued to drive us with our vision. Where can people find you? So uh, we're based at Rothamsted. Uh, if you ever pass by Rothamsted and you want to uh, meet us face to face, although obviously not not for the near future. Uh, otherwise, you can find us uh, obviously online. Our website is uh, fighterformlabs.com. Um, our Twitter handle is at fighterformlabs. Uh, and obviously, you can Google me and Nick and find us on LinkedIn uh, if you want to contact us. We, we do also have a satellite office in Boston, which... Uh, which currently because of COVID is uh, sadly unmanned, but we, we yeah. do expect to be there more, more often as, uh, as COVID recedes. Will Pelton, Nick Kroll from Phytoform Labs, thank you very much for joining me and for sharing your plant breeding story. Thank you very much, Hannah. It's yeah. been a pleasure to speak with you. You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. If you want to suggest people you'd like us to interview, contact me on Twitter at PBSint, or on Instagram at pbs underscore int. Until next time, stay well.